Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to incredible people about the causes that they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Mark Chipman is a quintessential Winnipegger through and through. As the executive chairman of the board of True North Sports and Entertainment and the Winnipeg Jets, he has devoted most of his professional life to giving back and helping improve the city where he was born and raised. If everybody sort of just left the place a little bit better, um, and that was their mindset, we could all just leave it a little bit better. If somebody was giving a eulogy someday and say, could say that, that uh, maybe I left it, or tried, tried my best to make the city a little better than, than it was, that would be great. Along with his wife, Patty, Mark has played a major role with the True North Youth Foundation since its inception in 1996. It consists of three major core programs, Camp Manitou, Project 11, and the Winnipeg Jets Hockey Academy. I sat down with Mark to talk about the causes that he cares about, the Jets and their history and legacy, and the importance of giving back and supporting those in need. Because everything we have and enjoy in the city was the product of the will of people before us, we have the responsibility to carry it forward. Mr. Mark Chipman, thank you for joining us in the Because and Effect podcast. Happy to have you here. Yeah, really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to talk about all sorts of things today. We're going to talk about sort of your approach to giving back to Winnipeg and philanthropy in general. But uh, my first question, how are you feeling about the, the season with the Jets? Now you've had a little bit of time to ruminate. How, how are you generally feeling about how things went? You know, I think, uh, okay. Um, have, as you say, had some time to reflect. Obviously still really disappointed. Um, it was, um, you know, a really a good year. We, we we held down first place in our division for most of the year. Didn't end the way we'd hoped or anybody would have hoped, but um, lots of good things to build on. Very young team. You know, we were the youngest team in the league um, this year again, and, and so there's lots of, you know, there's lots of things to grab onto, and that's what that's what you do. You look for things to grab onto, and one one of the things is, is the youth of our team, and, and the other would be, I think, the strength of our coaching group. And uh, so, um, yeah, I've been, been licking my wounds here for a while, and, uh, but starting to, starting to come out of it. Is there, has there been a shift between hoping you do well and expecting to do well? Yeah, I've, and, and it, the shift came kind of suddenly, right, because it was a slow build, and then I think there was evidence of what we've been working on uh, last year, and it kind of came upon everybody suddenly. I don't know that ever, anybody really expected us to go as far as we did last year. We had the sense that we could, that we were, we were tracking, you know, along the right trajectory, and that we had a good team. So, you know, I think that 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 sort of sudden success we had maybe was a bit of a surprise to people, not so much ourselves, but but to some, and 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 it set a, a level of expectation that we knew was going to be hard to to uh, measure up to. Um, I've, I've said this many times, and I, it was a piece of advice that uh, Daryl Sutter gave me a long time ago, and he said, you know, the hardest thing about this business is getting in the playoffs. The uh, 82-game schedule is really, really tough. It's a grind. And um, and so, you know, we've, we've gotten in um, the last couple of years, and I, I would have every expectation we will again next year. So... Long story short, disappointed but not disheartened. Uh, you know, 
feel really good about the direction we're going. There's in. so much potential there. And yeah. you, you, the core is young, talented, skilled, energetic, exciting yeah. to watch. It's a pretty, pretty exciting time to be a Winnipeg Jets fan for sure. Yeah. And good kids too, like good people, you know, we've been really intentional about that. And, uh, so, um, you know, a lot of them are, they're just not a lot of them. They're, we, we just have a bunch of really good kids and they get, uh, they get the subject that we're going to talk about today too. A lot of them are very generous with their time mm-hmm. and their, and their money. So, um, those are the most gratifying aspects of it, to be honest with you. Is that a set expectation that if you're going to be a part of the organization, you got to be willing to give back or do, is it, does it just kind of come uh, part and parcel? It's, it's combination. I think a lot of it just comes very naturally to a number of our players and, and, but we do expose them to the need in the community and, and, uh, and we give them the support to go whatever direction they want to go in. They all have, you know, various, uh, interests in, in causes. And a lot of them do it very quietly and, mm-hmm. and out of the, um, uh, out of the spotlight, so to speak, and that's their preference, and that's great. We really respect that. Some of them are involved with the actual work that we do, but not all. And um, yeah, uh, so we we have a it's a combination of we you know we try and tell them that we can be a multiplier for them. We have some resources that can help multiply the level of interest that they may have in a specific cause. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also it. it the organization has such a platform that as soon as you throw your weight behind something, people t- are going to take notice, right? Yeah. Has that been a con like, have you made a conscious effort to say, okay, we need to really shine a spotlight on this or that? I mean, project 11 does that, but a lot of things do that. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, our foundation has got a very specific, uh, sort of mandate to it. And, and the program we do, uh, uh you know, in and around the foundation is, is very intentional and specific, but there's a, there's a wide range of causes that we support through any number of ways. You know, we, we have this unique ability to bring awareness to things. So, you know, we, we do a bunch of work with Cancer Care Manitoba and, uh, and, and can be a bit of a, f- a force multiplier there and just in bringing awareness. Mental health for in, above and beyond what we do. You know, we, we're partnered with Bell so we can piggyback on the work that they do and so forth. We do a lot of work in supporting... Um, uh, the military and their various causes, um, which mm-hmm. are very congruent with, with the things that we do. So it, it you know, we're, we kind of spray the infield in a lot of respects, yeah. but we're very, very, we're, we're very concentrated in, in other areas. For sure. I was at the, uh, Ab McDonald luncheon honoring him a couple months ago. Yeah. Is there a conscious decision to, to, to keep the legacies alive of former players and for, and and people connected to the Jets back in the day. Yeah, for sure. And I think we, you know, our our strategy around that was to first of all like to get ourselves established in the league, and that wasn't you know no small task. That what I really mean by that is how do you become a competitive team? And so the vast majority of our energies in the first few years were really dedicated to becoming an NHL, you know, a bona fide NHL team. And, uh, and then when the opportunity to do the Heritage Classic came along, we, we really saw that as um, a platform to uh, celebrate the, the history of the, of the hockey club and the mm-hmm. name, the Winnipeg Jets. So we went after that event for that reason. We, we knew it was going to be a cool, fun event for the city, but it, it, what it really did was give us a connecting point to all of that history. And we were able to really re-energize the Winnipeg Jet Alumni Association and give and re re uh, establish it 
and and so and as a part of that, what we've been able to try and do is is celebrate uh, the history of some very unique and impactful players like Ab and mm-hmm. and Lars Eric Schoberg last year. And we you know we have plans to run that out for a period of time. Um, we've got some catching up to do there, but we're trying to do that in an orderly. Yeah, process. I think I, I read that there was a five-year plan to kind of establish a team yeah. and get and get a contender, and yeah. it seems to be right on track. Yeah, we're we're yeah <laughs> re- relatively yeah. pretty close. Yeah. Um, Let's move on to philanthropy. Sure. Um, has philanthropy and business kind of always been intertwined with you? Have you always kind of had that aspect of things? Yeah, I have. I, I and I would say, you know, that 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 as I thought about this in, in speaking to you today, I mean, it, it all kind of emanates from the example that my uh, my parents established, and and in particular, my dad. When you talk about the connection between philanthropy and business, uh, he was, in my view. Um, uh, really unique. Uh, really, really took the the responsibility very seriously. He's a was an extraordinary guy who started. You know, he was that quintessential, you know, start from nothing kind of guy. And uh, and but as soon as he started to have the l- the least bit of success, you know, he he had a very deliberate plan to. Um, uh, to share his mm-hmm. success, and so he set a great example for my brothers and my sister and I, and was was a sort of an early pioneer with the United Way and and established their leadership giving campaign. I remember that when I was a young kid, and and that kind of became a benchmark for United Ways all across North America. So, yeah, I mean, we really look look at one, them as it's a very symbiotic sort of relationship, you know. I read a great quote from Robert, your dad, Robert Chipman. The winners in the world are those that give. Yeah, and I thought that's brilliant because you you, you just think about the values that that those eight words instill in someone, right? Like that is winning is when you can give back. Yeah, I, I think, and I you know he he uh, he shared uh, those thoughts with us late in life. He he never when he was asked to he was he or he he was asked to accept. Uh, 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 an award from his high school and he was he had resisted for many years doing so and he finally agreed to do it I guess he felt he was at a point in his life where he could do that and and he laid that one amongst uh, a group of 12 on us and I, I felt like you know they were all really impactful but and I I'd kind of wished it he'd have shared that sooner because it wasn't like he just made them up or they just occurred to him because uh, honestly he really lived his life that way and um uh, and he was he was quite emphatic about all of our our responsibility to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he probably in, imparted it in different ways, maybe not with a snappy quote necessarily, right, right. but leading by example. Yeah, bit. yeah, exactly. Did he also impart the sort of connection? To, I mean, because you haven't been in Winnipeg your whole life, but you were born and raised here. You went to Florida for a while. Yeah. Um, did he impart the importance of building this community and continuing to improve the city as, as well? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that, you know, if if you looked at sort of the the history of our company, uh, and we wouldn't be unique in this. I mean, there are there. Are, I think it's what perhaps is unique to Winnipeg. Uh, there's 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 always been this sense of, you know, whatever we whatever we're able to harvest here needs to be reinvested here, whether it's in in you know starting and growing new businesses or in supporting the social service networks that already exist that's just kind of the way it was it wasn't ever anything that was really ever, ever 
talked about. It wasn't like it was an, ever an agenda item or was like, it was just the way he rolled, you know? And so he just sort of assumed that's how it always was and would be. Right. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and so that's just how it is, I guess. Yeah. Are you are you thinking of being more um, explicit with your kids when it comes to making sure you get there? Or are you just leading by example? Yeah, well? no, we we have been, and uh, you know, I, I think my wife and I, we, with them, have led by example. And, um, my wife's, you know, been been very very active as well. But you know, so I think they've had the combination of seeing it, but we also talk about it a lot, and uh, it's not like they need convincing. You know, it it. Um, I think they've they just got a sense it's 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 kind of the part of the DNA of how we how we operate you know yeah for sure um, let's talk a little bit about Gonzaga Middle School and how that where, what was the inspiration for wanting to get that started I've been around the city long enough now to and and involved in various forms of um, community building or philanthropy that I I I, I firmed up a pretty uh sober view of the challenges that we have in the city many years ago and uh and i think i came to understand that uh you know to the to the extent that poverty is a a real issue and uh for us the the one sort of proven way out uh, of poverty that i think most people can agree on is education and um, and so, as you begin, or as you as you run across various initiatives and you see success and f- failure, you know what you you start to see trends and and they point in the direction of of successful education, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was on, I was you know my mind was open to that or attuned to that, and and uh, I happened upon uh, the model of school. It was brought to my um, attention many years ago. There was a successful one in Regina that had been up and running, and so I, I, I sought it out, and we went and visited it and immediately came to learn that it was uh, based on a, a model that had been very successfully operated in the States mm-hmm. back to 1970. It was appealing to me, frankly, because it, it actually was, uh, it was born out of um, the the... The Jesuit uh, faith of of uh, of Catholicism, huh. where I from which I was educated in high school, and didn't have any real appreciation for while I was time, in high school, yeah. but it um, it was you know there's a there's an ethos there that is that is based on service right it's on for, uh, for people who aren't aware of the the sort of new model what what how how's that school run just to get people so it's contact. it's 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 not a, it. It's not a, a faith-based school in that it's, you know, there's an attempt to prophetize uh, kids. It's, it, it, it exposes kids to uh, and celebrates, you know, all, any number of, of faith. Uh, and, but and that, that, that might be, I would say that would be a, a theme of the school, but the, the basis of the school is really just a and immersion and learning through a longer school day and a longer school year and uh, a range of supports to kids that they don't have, including nutrition, right, and transportation. And so, you know, I learned last week at our, our most recent 
uh, board meeting, we're running at about 93.5% attendance through the school year, which is down slightly from Christmas for some good and valid reasons. But the reason we're able to do that is because we pick these kids up. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get on the bus, uh, we have the resources to go and pick them up, Mm -hmm. right? If they they don't come off the bus, we'll go and and get them. And the reason they're, they're not attending is usually because you know, they may or may not be at their primary residence or they may be in the custody of, a, of another family member and mm-hmm. couldn't be home in time for the bus to get there. These, these kids are, 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 are not, you know, it's not a special needs school. It's a school for kids who don't, who are, who are, whose families are below the poverty line and just lack resource mm-hmm. to help them learn. So we provide those resources. It's just sort of a full court press when it comes to whatever the needs are. Right, yeah. whatever they may be, and um, you know, we we the kids that that we that start within grade six usually, you know, they've got pretty significant numeracy and literacy deficits, and the idea, the reason it's a middle school is because, you know, I, I think what they found in the U.S. was that it was at that point in time you'd like to catch them earlier if you could, but if you don't catch them up in those core competencies by middle years the chances of them graduating from high school are are really really remote that kind of ties in with what the true north youth foundation does as well when it comes to the uh or the jets hockey academy and giving it it, it all seems to tie in with giving people the opportunity to experience stuff that they may not have the chance to do so let's talk a little bit about the uh, about the hockey academy and the type of kids that get the opportunity to go out there and skate you know hockey's not a cheap sport to get into my parents can attest that i played for 30 years and yeah equipment can get costly so what is the what what is the foundation's role in helping get more kids out on the ice well you know i guess the genesis of that was i remember before we got into the nhl long before uh we were looking to do something in and around uh, making the game more accessible and at that time the model program and still is in my view is is the ed snyder um, program in Philadelphia and it's been enormously successful. So we, we looked very carefully at, at that travel to Philly. They were incredibly helpful. Theirs is somewhat different than ours. Like they're, they run their own ranks and they, it's, it's, it's actually a, you know, more of a competitive program than ours. What we thought made sense was just to, to find a way to get kids playing the game, but in a way that connected them what would be the benefits of that other than just learning the skills of playing hockey? Well, the benefit is really there's a way to create a closer connection with their schools. So you offer mm-hmm. the program through school. Um, if you want to go, you want to be a part of the hockey program, you got to go to school that day or else you can't get on the bus and go play hockey. We started off very modestly, 25 kids. Um, out of Shaughnessy Park. It's now, I think this year, we're 860 kids across three school divisions. Again, the emphasis is not to create hockey players. It was to give kids a healthy experience, see their educators outside of school, which can be a, a very valuable tool in and of itself, and, and, draw, and, and create a closer connection between their school and the activity and with the idea of driving attendance rates. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's rolled out through the public school system, as I said, through three divisions in, in Winnipeg. Been, it's expensive, but it's, it's been really successful to the point where we now, we have eight teams, boys and girls teams that play in Winnipeg Minor for those kids that are good and serious and want to pursue. You know, pursue it. 
So, but it's really been, it's run by, uh, by a guy by the name of Dwayne Green, who was responsible for bringing the Hockey, the Hockey Canada Skills Academy into the St. James School Division. And uh, he's a, you know, a lifelong educator and a great, he was a really good hockey player, college hockey player. Very cool. So he and a guy named Murray Cobb, um, you know, masters in social work and played uh, college hockey at McGill. They really engineered the program and run it to this day. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's worked great. There's some pretty spectacular videos on on the Jets website and stuff that are on the True North Youth Foundation website. Where I think there's a couple kids who you know if they're from immigrant families or whatever it may be who literally haven't even even been in a country with snow and now they're getting a go out on skates and yeah. it's like pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, I agree. It's been really cool. I, I know the video you're talking about, um, and it's been not just you know, uh, impactful on those children, but their families as well. You know, it's been a, a nice way for, to acclimate, uh, you know, growing number of new Canadians. Absolutely. So that's sort of one of the three main prongs that the foundation, um, has. Are you, did you go to camp growing up? Did you, were you a camp I did, kid? Yeah. yeah, I did. Yeah. So Camp Manitou is the other, one of the other prongs. Yeah. Um, why has that been a focus that the uh, foundation has pursued? So that grew out of, so as, as most things that are, <laughs> seem to be a, value uh, grew sort of organically out of the hockey program because um, when you're on the ice with these kids, uh, what I came to learn um, a few years ago was behavior would start to change around this time of year, April, May. Because there's no more hockey. No, and, <laughs> and, and, and the prospect of school ending, which was very foreign to me because I imagine you had the same experience. Like, you know, the last six weeks of schools were uh, were torturous because – you know, you were, couldn't wait for that last bell. It was a breakaway for the summer months. Not so much the case for a lot of these kids because the only structure they have, or many of them have, is school and the, the structure that their teachers and, and, and school itself provide. So you start to see behaviors change. And I, I commented one day to, to Greener, I said, like, what's going on? These kids, we, we'd spent the year building bridges sort of thing and levels of trust were built and, you know, you're getting along well and kids are making progress. And all of a sudden, and, and he, without, without even, um, you know, hesitating said, well, it's the end of the school year. That's, that, that, that's challenging for a lot of these kids, mm-hmm. which, uh, in my, you know, naivety kind of caught me off guard. And so I said, well, how do you stay connected with these kids in the summertime? I uh, attended Camp Manitou when I was a kid, grew up in that part of town, uh, literally a neighbor of it, you know, currently, uh, just lived down the street from it, saw the struggle and keeping it going for years and years. A lot of really good people kept it going, but it was just really failing and, uh, and falling apart. So we thought, Hey, this would be great. You know, we could have all of the kids we deal with in the wintertime. They'd have a place to go in the summertime. That was sort of the original thought. And we could rebuild the place and make it accessible to a much broader range of kids as well. So that was the idea. And um, so we've been kind of rebuilding the camp since 2014. And it's it's really rocking now. Like it's sold out for the summer. And, and uh, yeah, so that's how that all came about. We went for a little tour there last summer. I got to go on the zip line and the yeah. climbing wall there. It's I mean, I wish I was a kid still because it's a pretty cool little spot they got going yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Project 11 as well. Um, for those that don't know, uh, Rick Rippin, former Manitoba Moose, um, lost his life to suicide, and Project 11 focuses on mental and physical health for people. 
before we talk about Project Lemon, do you have any stories about Rick that you could share with us when with his time at the Moose? Uh, I could share a bunch. Um, <laughs> PG-13, perhaps? Yeah, only? no, I mean, well, Rick was a really quiet kid. And uh, the one story that, the, fir- the first story uh, that I'll never, ever forget was uh, the day that we signed him. His career with Regina had just come to a conclusion. And he, he uh, the reason Craig Heisinger sought him out was the... The, the playoffs that year were um, in our building. Brandon was playing Regina. Brandon had a very good team. Regina struggled, and Rip was their captain. And it was a two-game series, and we gave it to him pretty good. But the practice in between, uh, Zinger was watching the practice, and this kid was, like, blocking shots, and their season was all but over, right? And he was and he was a pretty diminutive guy. He was wiry. He didn't, wasn't really f- very filled out, and he looked very young. Anyhow, Zinger um, um, suggested to Randy Carlisle, who was our our coach and GM at the time, that uh, we ought to sign this kid. And you know, Randy's a, is is kind of a can be somewhat contrary. And uh, he and Zinger sort of had this legendary sort of grumpy old men, you know, thing going. Uh-huh. You know, they 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 would banter back and forth. Sometimes you know when they were serious, but. Anyhow, Rick standing outside Randy's office, and he looked like he was about 15 or 16 years old, even though he was then 20, I think, or, yeah, no, he, he was, maybe he's 19, doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, and Zinger walks in and says, okay, the kid's out, outside, go grab him and bring him in, and I want to see what you think. Well, Randy came out, like, and I was standing in the hallway, he looked at him and just walked right past him, figuring... He was looking for somebody That's else. Not the kid. And he comes back and goes, uh, there's nobody out there. And he goes, he's right outside the door. And he's like, you got to be, you know, blank and kidding me. Um, anyhow, long story short, um, Rip played for us the next day. And um, I probably shouldn't say this, but one of the greatest tilts I've ever seen in my life. Like this kid was so tough and, and so... Um, just so special as a player, you know. There was just something so unique about him that I mean, Mike Keane just saw it in him right away, and they became really close, like, right away. This kid was special. And uh, so that's – I could tell you a whole bunch more stories, uh, including, you know, the goal he scored for us um, in our in the, the, the last season. He scored an overtime goal in Cleveland that caused us to win that series. He was He was just a lovely soul, and – um, and honestly, not a day goes by where his name doesn't come up or we don't think of him. Just pure heart. Pure heart. Did you say he was blocking shots in practice? He was blocking <laughs> shots in practice. Yeah, like... <laughs> that uh, says all you need to say yeah, if you play hockey. Yeah, and and, no, and they weren't a very good team, and and he was a captain of that team for a reason. Setting you know? the tone. Yeah. So where was the um, genesis of Project 11? So truth be told about Rip, like he had been struggling for years after he left here and, and, and to everybody's utter amazement other than Zinger carved out a national hockey league career, uh, and a good one, you know, he became a very impactful player. Beloved too. Yeah. Vancouver, just, everywhere he went, everywhere he went, just, you know, you just couldn't help but love this young man. He, he's, he was struggling and, and, and Zinger came to understand that early. And so without any sort of 
skills or knowledge or anything. Zinger just became his go-to. Uh, and he and Kevin BX, I would say, between the two of them, kept kept uh, Rip alive for several years. Uh, he he came, you know, very close to taking his life a couple times prior. And he finally got him, you know, the help he needed. Um, and and one of the things he he really struggled with was the stigma. Uh, you know, he grew up in a in rural Alberta, as in in a, you know, I would say a, you know in a tough town and, and, but, you know, with, with great family and et cetera, but I just don't think it was even remotely uh, possible to talk about those kinds of issues in the, in, you know, in, in the environment he grew up in, it was just, you know, like shake it off, toughen up sort of. And so that I think just exacerbated the problem for him. And, and so it became, it just the, the the issues became layer upon layer. Zinger did his best for years, especially and being untrained. Yeah, un- any sort of yeah, completely untrained. You know, he is now extremely trained in, in the subject, but he kept them going, and um, and and we kept it very private, obviously. Um, but one when, when, when we finally got him some proper health help, sorry, um, one of the first things he said was when he seemed to be doing well is what, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to start some advocacy for young kids because he didn't want, you know, as he put it, he didn't want young kids to have to suffer uh, and, and, and have to hide behind, you know, the stigma, right. And be afraid of the stigma. So he said, you know, if I'm, if I'm, what I'd like to do at some point in time is to be an advocate for, for uh, this subject. Mm -hmm. Regrettably, um, you know, he never got a chance to, so we right away, Zinger and I said, hey, we got to take this up. And we didn't want to do something that was, you know, um, temporary. We wanted to do something that really um, respected Rick's life. And so we came up with this idea of creating some resources for teachers to uh, teach the subject, again, at middle school, um, because the research we did suggested that you know, it was at that age that kids had the cognitive ability to start to understand not only the way they might be feeling and how to deal with those feelings, but to spot it in other kids, mm-hmm. which is really important, and to be to be a support system for peers. So it's not just about you and how you feel, and you know what, and whatever those feelings may be, whether they're you know anxiety or or depression or whatever they may be, but to spot them in your friends mm-hmm. and to be an advocate for your friends as opposed to just, you know, um, uh, not knowing what to do. Or just say, yeah, they'll be fine or oh, you, they'll handle it themselves. Right. Yeah. You touched on it a little bit. I don't even know how to answer this or ask this question, but professional sports has always kind of had the tough mentality, like get out there whatever, unless your leg's broken, you can go skate on it. Have you noticed a shift in the NHL and in your organization as, as well when it comes to player wellness being um, prioritized over any like over anything almost? And how has the Jets organization sort of led the way when it comes to focusing on wellness? I don't know that we've led the way. I think that I think that the the, the subject of of mental wellness is is has long since now been understood to be every bit as important as physical wellness and I think that you would find across the National Hockey League 
at least in my experience, that the player's well-being is absolutely paramount. And, um, and it's, it's, so I, that's why I find it frustrating some days, to, you know, the suggestion that, you know, players are um, unthoughtfully asked to return to play, you know, against their, their wishes. Like nothing could be further from the truth, you know, especially when it comes to, to head injuries, like the, the protocols that have been established by the league and that we follow are, um, are so thorough and so, um, so centered on, on the player's well-being. I think we find more often the players pushing us to get back to play than, than, you know, us ever suggesting we think you're ready to play when you may not be, you know? Um, yeah, I think the league's, is very enlightened on that front. Has have you noticed a, di- a change in the league? Like you've been in, in professional sports for a very long time. Have you noticed yep. just the way things are yep. kind of shifted? Yeah. Well, for sure. Like evolved. Yeah, one hundred percent. So like this is, this was year twenty three for me, wow. and um, you know, and and through throughout that time, absolutely, I've seen a much um, a much more highly cron- concentrated. Uh, uh, awareness of player well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I'm, I think back whenever I talk about this with friends or family. I think back to the Mike. There's a great Mike Babcock interview where he's talking about it's not weak. You know, you it's it's the strongest people I know are so so-called people with mental struggles or whatever because that's what true strength is. And he had an, a lot of great quotes when it comes to that. Are you still focusing on that in the Jets organization as well? Is that sort of still a, a focus that's going to be on the forefront? Yeah, for sure it is. I mean, because it's everywhere. I mean, I, when you talk about mental wellness, I, I rarely can you find somebody, you know, whether it's a friend or colleague or whatever, whose life hasn't been touched by it in some way, shape, or form. I, you know, um, I'm certainly uh, no exception there. I've, you know, there's it, it's, and and I think what's really gratifying. Uh, what what what's really now starting to to emerge is the notion that it it's not only okay to talk about it it's super important to talk about it and um you know when I was a kid growing up he just was never mm-hmm. talked about yeah but um you played football right too that, I did, that's yeah. another world where you hear stories that are kind of like get back out there like, yeah and you know and i i have a my own uh, uh i have my own uh sort of personal example of that but you know playing when i when i when i shouldn't have been but uh but it wasn't because i was forced into it it was because i was terrified that if i didn't i was hanging on by a thread to, you know to play where i played so that i was so I was so afraid of losing the opportunity that when it came along and I got dinged really bad one day, you know, I just couldn't fathom, uh, you know, uh, sitting out, sitting down. Those days have changed for sure. Yeah. So guys are way more self-aware now, I believe. For sure. But at the same time, you as on the other side of the coin have to be aware that guys are going to play if, if they can. Right. So you have to, you know, you have to protect them from themselves. You have to protect them from from themselves. And, you know, fortunately we've got a, a, you know, a phenomenal, um, team of, of professionals, uh, health professionals that oversee our, our group that 
are very adept at doing that. It seems to be a pretty solid team you've assembled, not just on the ice, but off as well. And, and it goes right to our coaches too, you know, like uh, you can, you, you just can sense the, the, the care and concern that our coaches have for our players' well-being. What are you most optimistic about for the next five seasons for the Jets? Well, I think I'm optimistic. I, I feel good about the the strength of our our core and our, the the youth of our team. And I think, you know, um, you know, Patrick Liney just turned 21 years old, and I, I often um, reflect on how how useless I was as a 21 year old at pretty much everything, you know, and how far past, like the, you know, it's unfathomable, unfathomable how how mature this guy is for his age. Uh, same with same with Casey and Jack Rosovic and all of those kids. They're really, while they're still young, they're they're mature beyond their years in a lot of ways. So it gives you hope because they're just going to keep getting more and more mature. He's poised. You know, it's very rare that you see a young man that's able to just kind of handle himself in what I would assume and what most would assume is pretty high stress situation. Yeah, very high. He's, you know, he's big, Patty's biggest challenge is he's so hard on himself. His, mm. his level of expectation that he sets for himself. It every all of the everything all the pressure that 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 uh, Patrick feels he puts on himself. He, he's that's just the way he's wired. He's he's expects to to um, to really achieve. So that might be another thing that you need to protect players from themselves when it comes to internal strife. Almost like yes, you have to protect their physical well-being, but also you can't let them go down a a rabbit hole of negativity. Yeah, either. yeah, and and that you know that that. That falls on um, that falls on our coaches, and that's why that the other thing I would say to give what gives me confidence is is that is the is the the, the coaching team that we've assembled um, are are superb in my opinion at understanding all of the different emotions and 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 uh, issues that our players uh, have to deal with in a Canadian market because Canadian markets are different. I don't you know, and there might be a few original six U.S. markets that are similar. But there's, um, there's nothing like the, the the expectation and the pressure and the scrutiny that comes in a Canadian marketplace. Hundred percent. Do you think some guys strive in that world too? Yeah, some do, some do, and some don't. Some sink or swim. Like yeah, yeah, it's uh, some absolutely love it and thrive on it, and it's why they love playing here. Others would prefer anonymity. Do you find that out in retrospect, or do you try to figure that out before they put on a jersey? You try and figure it out in advance. Now, most of these kids have played in the spotlight, right? Like, once That's you get – if you look at our team, it's basically composed of first-round draft picks, right? I mean, or, or, there's a lot. If you really count them up, even, you know, like Joe Morrow was a first-rounder. Uh, you know, um, uh, Nathan Boileau was a first-round pick. These kids have all felt the heat in the spotlight. So most of them, and what I mean by that is some of the guys that aren't what, what our fans would consider to be mainstream core players, even those guys were first, second round picks and played in World Junior Championships or Memorial Cups or whatever. So most of them can handle it. Yeah. Most of the guys we have, there's only been a few that I think in retrospect after they left probably were better off elsewhere. Without the spotlight necessarily shining yeah. that bright on them. Well, thank you for talking hockey with me. Um, let's talk a little bit about Winnipeg and sort of the, the maybe we can talk about True North Square and how the breathing life into the downtown again. How why is that a priority for for your organization? Well, because I think um, you know, so Winnipeg is 
is always sort of in my, we're, we're always kind of kicking and scratching and fighting to move forward, right? We've, we have this steady as she goes kind of uh, mindset, which is great, served us well for a hundred plus years. Um, but it just seems like, you know, you got to keep pushing. Uh, I, I, I don't like using over, over, over using metaphors and analogies, but it's not like the flywheel, like it's spinning, you know, you know how much inertia it takes to get the wheel going. And then once it's flying, you just got to touch it a few times. That's not us. Like we're forever having to turn the wheel over here. And, um, and so that's all that was intended to be was a way, how do we turn the wheel again in downtown? Downtown Winnipeg is, uh, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but, uh, you know, I'm, as we sit here, um, I think one of the things that, that I'm most concerned about in our city is uh, I would, I would uh, be willing to say is a, is a crisis uh, born out of, um, uh, the combination of a still a very, you know, um, impoverished and vulnerable population, and crystal meth. Like we got a very serious problem going on right now, and and um, I could probably spend the rest of the afternoon talking to you about that and the and the work, you know, that uh, myself and a bunch of people have been involved in in trying to um, bring some assistance to that. But I I would tell you that that. That that's a that's a concern. Mm -hmm. So I, that may not be. I don't I don't know if that's a natural answer to well, question about true north square. I yeah. mean, downtown is about how do you turn it? How do you move it forward constantly? Because it's not like it's getting any easier. In fact, right now, it's really tough. It's as tough as I've ever felt it in mm -hmm. the you know thirty years that I've been back here. It's uh, feels like it's it's uh, we're in the grips of something that could be really problematic right now, right now. How can the average person or, you know, the someone on the suburbs that doesn't maybe necessarily get to see the, the strife in the inner city, how can we, what, what, what can we say to them to, to get them on board of understanding that this is a crisis and we need to kind of all come together to solve it? Well, I honestly, I think, I think the, what everybody can do is, and, and, you know, it's, it's, while it's acute downtown, it's not, it's certainly not limited to downtown. Like it's, it's a, it's a readily accessible and very cheap drug that is spreading, um, across our city. It's, it's not unique to Winnipeg, but we've got a very, we got a unique problem with it in Winnipeg. Um, but I think people got to be very vocal and, and let, this is a public policy issue. You know, this isn't something that's going to be solved by, uh, you know, a non-for-profit organization with a volunteer board, uh, or, or a, a whole um, association of 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 well-intended people. This is a health crisis. It needs it, it's it's unfortunately and it's it's draining. It's it's inordinately um, a, a justice crisis. But it needs to be moved from that paradigm or that purview of just justice into health. This is a yeah. full-blown health crisis. And we don't have the resources in this community to deal with it. And our, so those who are responsible for health, and I've met with the minister. He's a wonderful guy, and he gets it. Um, the, I, I think the problem is we're lacking the resources to deal with it. Yeah. 
on the health side and on the justice side, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's not going to, this is one of those, you know, hope's not a good strategy here. Like this is not one that's going to go away. It just to be proactive too. Very. Yeah. And so everybody can, you know, can, can, can learn about it. And, and there probably are a number of ways where people could actually get involved to help. But at a minimum, it's a responsibility for everybody to be pounding the table saying, we, this is what we're doing isn't good enough. The people who are dealing with this are grossly under-resourced, overworked. They need more support. And um, Let's make it a priority. Make it a priority. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time together. Uh, at the end of every podcast, we like to do a thing called Just Because, where I ask you seven quick questions. Don't think about it too much. Just okay. kind of say whatever pops into your mind. Are you okay to do that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Awesome. Uh, let me find a question. Sure. Okay, first question. Uh, what is the first cause that you remember caring about from the very beginning? Um, I was struck by, um, a young, when I was a little kid, you know, the hockey team I played on, one of the kids couldn't afford, uh, the team jacket at the end of the year. I remember that stuck with me and, uh, couldn't understand that because we, you know, grew up in St. James and, uh, how does that happen? Right. Everybody seemed like the same, but what they weren't, that bothered me. And so the issue of just sort of going without, troubles me it's kind of like quiet poverty right yeah. you don't you don't think right yeah it's some things that are underneath the surface that you don't necessarily see like a you know a homeless person on the street isn't necessarily what poverty is yeah and the ironic thing about that was his father was the most generous guy he was the guy who drove the station wagon that everybody piled into but and and he had he he didn't have you know I felt he he didn't have the ability to say he needed help, but he did. And uh, fortunately, some really smart parents recognized that. And there's no way we were going to let the kid go without getting a jacket at the end of the year. Question number two: If money, politics, and logistics were no issue at all, what's the first thing you would do in support of your cause? Uh Money, politics, and... and legi- so if you could basically snap your fingers and something would happen in support of a, a cause you care about, what would you do? Um, we'd create a, uh, a center in the city uh, that provides a continuum of services to people who are chronically addicted to alcohol and drugs. Um, the, 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 not, not the typical or the, you know, the treatment center uh, that, that those you know, some people can afford to go to, but a, a range of services that can deal with the acuteness of the problem we're dealing with in downtown Winnipeg. Perfect. What's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about the cause? Um, well, that it that it's a, it's just going to go away on its on its own, and that it's a problem for that that it's not going to spread, and it's 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 out there, right? That it's not a it really doesn't it's really not affecting the well-being of our of our community where in fact it's 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 undermining the well-being of our community i remember hearing or seeing a lot of comments when the sort of meth crisis was rampant in the united states yeah. f- 5 years ago and p- hearing and seeing people oh that'll never happen here right and look where we are you know well, it's, there, it's there's dangerous. A, there's an incredible uh, documentary on the city of seattle called seattle is dying um it's is produced by one of their local uh, television networks. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Number four. What? 
how do you know when it's time to throw in the towel? Not necessarily with cause, but just in life. Have you, have you ever had a moment where you're like, <laughs> where you're like ah, we weren't going to... I've been asking this a little bit differently. How do you know when it's time to pivot when a plan isn't going correctly? Um, well, I, I'm trying to think of... I, I think if you can't get real buy-in, if you, you know it when you see it, and if it's not there, then I think... I like your term pivot. I think one thing I've learned is that you can do anything you want in life, but you can't do everything, right? You can do anything, but you can't do everything as much as you'd like to solve every problem. So it's a matter of where, where, what's, you almost apply the real estate principle of highest and best use. What's the highest and best use of my time? If you hit a wall, um, you know, rather than sort of give up in despair, you, there, you off, I've often found that there may be, well, you couldn't get exactly what you wanted and, you know, in that initiative, there there can be pieces of it that you can still grab onto and move in a different direction and get other people connected to them. Is that the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? Yeah. I've never really understood what that meant until maybe yeah. just now. It's like, take take pieces of what yeah. didn't work and don't just chuck the whole thing Correct. away. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? You know, I've been the beneficiary of so much good advice. I don't know uh, what exactly, but... It, you know, sort of, I guess in keeping with um, the theme of what we've been talking about, my dad used to say to me, you know, if, if you're not, if you don't feel it, you're not really given, you know, if it doesn't, if you don't, if it doesn't hurt or you don't feel it, then, uh, you know, so there wasn't so much an advice as an admonition, you know, like you may think you're given or doing something, but if it doesn't really, if you don't feel it and you can do it sort of without any consequence to your own circumstance i don't know that you're really really giving you know true sacrifice yeah is giving is sacrifice yeah so this is the best piece it's not about you right again not so much a piece of advice but but kind of it's not about you life isn't about you right and if you think it is yeah man i think most people figure that out eventually but the sooner you can figure that out I re- try and remind my, my, my kids of that, and, you know, um, <laughs> uh-huh. and, and they've been great, but, but you know, life, this whole process is not about you, right? The world doesn't revolve around you. No, right? yeah. no. I think I've been told that once or twice yeah, by I'm my sure. parents. Well. <laughs> um, question number six, what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could talk to him right now? My 10 year old self. Yeah. That's a, t- if you think I was, if I said I was, not much value at 21 at 10. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to, you want me to be 10 years old now or 10 year old, 10 years old when I, in 1970, when I was 10, would it be different? Yeah. Because now I would say, put down, put down the phone, (laughs) put down the phone and put down, put down the call of duty, you know, seriously, like, like that's crazy, you know, like go outside. So I, I grew up playing sports, right? And that was the gift that my father gave me. And we went from, you know, from one sport to the other. It went from playing baseball, you know, which was new and exciting, to playing football in the fall, to playing hockey in the winter. And then you started all over again. So don't be one-dimensional. Don't just play hockey all year long or be involved in gymnastics. Like, 
as early as you can, try as many different things. It seems like parents are going the opposite direction. They're thinking, okay, if my kid's good at hockey, they're going to play nothing but hockey all right. year round. And that's putting all your eggs in one basket. It's a little dangerous to think about that. It is. And we tell those parents at an early, as whenever we're asked, uh, we don't, this is not something we do unsolicited, but when we're asked, that's exactly what our scouts and our, the Mike Keens of the world tell people, go play baseball, play soccer in the summertime. If you're good enough, we'll find you. You know, there's 31, soon to be 32 teams with full-blown amateur scouting teams combing the earth. We'll find you. You'll be under a rock in northern Sweden. We'll find you if you're good enough. And it develops different hand-eye balance, way different skill. Yeah, And emotional skills too, right? You know, learn how to fail. Learn how to lose early because you're going to do it multiple times in life. So what would the advice be if you could travel back to 1970-whenever? Don't be so interested in sports. Learn, <laughs> um, you know, spend more time reading. And uh, because I struggled in school as a result, you know, I, 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 my the people at my high school would gladly point this out. I was, you know, I, I got through, but I didn't, I made it far more of a struggle because I didn't make it a priority. Just be well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Read. read. Learn to read, read, read and read lots. Last question. What do you want to be remembered for? Hmm. Um, I'm trying not to say something, you know, cliche, cliche here. That's Um, okay. That's still allowed. I don't know. Um, I think that, uh, I think that, you know, first I, I would hope that, uh, my family would have felt that I was uh, a good father, for sure. That's sort of the first thing that comes to mind. And I think that's perhaps the most important thing you can do in life is to um, is to raise kids, and it's tougher and tougher to do that. So I would hope that they f- would have felt that I did my best um, at being a good parent. And, uh, and, and then just being a good citizen, you know, that I... Um, you, you know, the, if everybody sort of just left the place a little bit better um, and that was their mindset, we could all just leave it a little bit better. If if they could, if, you know, if somebody was giving a eulogy someday and say, could say that, that uh, maybe I left it or tried tried my best to make the city a little better than than it was, that would be great. Well, you're leaving this room a little better than when it when you first walked in, you're leaving the podcast better off than it was. <laughs> Thank you for talking to us, being so honest and candid and sharing a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of your plans and everything. It was great to have you. Hey, it was, this was a lot of fun. Cool. Great idea. So thanks for having me. Thank you to Mark Chipman for the wonderful conversation. Good luck in, to you and the Winnipeg Jets in your upcoming year. Uh, hopefully you can make the make a run at the playoffs again. And honestly, thank you for everything you do to make Winnipeg a better place. To learn more about the True North Youth Foundation, you can go to True, True North Youth Foundation, all one word.com. That's True North Youth Foundation, all one word.com. So this is the last of 12 episodes of The Cause and Effect from Season 1. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, there are 11 more to listen to if you haven't yet. If this is the first one uh, you've checked out, I have been 
incredibly fortunate to get to talk to some amazing people and the whole first season has been awesome awesome conversations from start to finish so no matter what your interests are i'm sure there's an episode in there that you would enjoy uh, if you just go to becauseandeffect.org you can check all episodes out all 12 from season one uh, we'll be back for season two starting in september really excited and we have some amazing guests for season two as well really looking forward to it um and if any of these episodes have like struck a chord with you or resonated with you in any way or you think someone in your life would find them interesting send them a personal message uh, through a text or email or whatever word of mouth is basically the only way i find new podcasts or new songs or or if someone suggests i check out an obscure movie or whatever so if you were affected by any of the any of the episodes from season one um, share it with a friend or family member it helps us out and and that's what it's all about we're here to share positive messages and to uh, talk about the causes we care about and just to make the world a better place that's the whole goal here Um, so thank you for being a part of it all music on the because and effect podcast was composed and produced by trenton burton you can check him out and his music at trentonburton.com t-r-e-n-t-o-n-b-u-r-t-o-n.com because in effect is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation. Special thank you to Robert Zirk, Sonny Promolo, and Jeremy Morantz for production assistance throughout season one. Really appreciate it, boys. Thank you so much for all your help. Uh, my name is Nolan Bicknell. You can follow me at Nolan Bicknell on all social media. And please follow the Winnipeg Foundation at WPGFDN as well for all information about Because in effect and everything else that the foundation is doing in our city as well. Um, goodbye. Thank you for listening. This is the end of season one. We'll see you for season two and take care of each other out there. Thanks. Bye-bye.